Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20 says this. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get in to the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, this is a big passage, and there is a lot for us to tackle. And I pray that through us wrestling with your word, that we would get a picture and an image of what life in your kingdom is to look like. I pray that we would see the beautiful picture of Jesus' life put on full display for us. And I ask that we would be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is our third week in the Sermon on the Mount. What we've looked at so far is the Beatitudes, the beautiful attitudes that are to characterize God's people in His kingdom. And then He gives us a picture of what this life is to look like in the world. It's salt and light. Everything you touch is going to be changed because Jesus has changed you. All of your works and good deeds are going to give picture, illuminate the goodness and the glory of our God. And what, what the picture of this Sermon of the Mount really is, is a reimagining of what happened for God's people as they are coming out of Egypt. So here's the picture. Jesus is on a mountain with thousands of his disciples. Moses, after he had taken Israel out of Egypt, went to a mountain along with God's people, went up the mountain, received God's word, and then brought God's commands for life in God's kingdom in relationship with him to those very people. So the picture here is Jesus is the new Moses. He has brought his people to the mountain. He is bringing the commands and instructions for how we live in the kingdom of God to God's people. And they are to listen and they are to obey. But there's a tension that's happening here. And you can see this all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And that's, what is Jesus' relationship to the old commands? So the law of Moses, is Jesus con completely contradictory to this? Is he abiding by it? What, what is Jesus' relationship to the old commands? It's kind of like whenever a new boss comes into the office. Whenever a new boss comes into the office, what happens? He has his own set of values. He has his own set of processes and procedures. And it's in essence like all the old stuff is now irrelevant. But Jesus steps into this tension. He addresses this attention through the passage that we're in this morning. So here's what I want us to do as we're looking through our passage this morning. I want to do three things. I want first for us to consider what is our relationship as followers of Jesus to the commands of God? What is our relationship? Second... What does a life that lives according to the commands of God actually look like? 
Jesus gives us a picture through his six ethical teachings in this passage that we'll, we'll try to hit briefly but quick and uh, hopefully well. Okay? Um, and then third, Jesus gives this command at the very end of this passage, which I believe is a summarizing statement for the whole passage. And I want us to look at how we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's, that's where I want us to go. We'll look at some application and then we'll close. All right? So let's look at that first question first. What is our relationship as followers of Jesus Christ to God's commands? We see this in those first four verses that we read together. I'm going to read them again so we can get refreshed. Jesus says this, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing here is I think he's addressing wrong assumptions. There's two particular wrong assumptions that he's addressing. The first one is that Jesus came to abolish the law. You get this right at the outset in verse 17. It starts, don't think. Which assumes what? That they think, right? They think that Jesus has come to abolish the law. Abolish here literally means for you to consider it irrelevant or to completely destroy it. It's kind of like whenever you get the new Apple device. The old Apple device is now irrelevant, right? It it no longer has, the the battery life on it is junk. Um, The processes and the things that it can do for you is nothing compared to the new device. It's completely irrelevant. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm doing at all. I'm not coming to say that the commands of God are completely irrelevant. Rather, I came to fulfill it. Now, when we think about fulfillment, we think about predictions. Predictions coming true. We're mildly obsessed with it, all right? So be with me here for a little while. We have Groundhog's Day, right? We literally have an event every single year where we try to look at a groundhog coming out of a hole, looking at its shadow and depicting if there are going to be warm months or colder months immediately ahead. Think about Y2K. We're coming into 2000, and we are terrified that our whole entire system is going to completely implode. All of our technology, all the systems, everything about our world is going to completely implode because 2000 is coming around, and it didn't happen. Obviously, we're still here. Amen. Then third, you also have like the, in 2012, you had the obsession with the Mayan calendar. The end of the world was going to come. We literally had books. We had movies, we had news outlets that were completely devoted to this idea or this prediction that the end of the world was coming in 2012. We're mildly obsessed with predictions. But Jesus is not talking about predictions, he's talking about something bigger. The issue with predictions is that you get lost in the granular. You lose sight of the whole. So what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about fulfillment is he literally means I have come to fill it full. This idea of figuration. So the law and the prophets is an easy way for, back in Jesus' day, just to say the whole Bible. 
And so what Jesus is trying to do, think with me about iPhone photography here, all right? So what Jesus is saying is predictions are more like a snapshot. We're trying to capture something that's going on in the life of your kid, a part of the family vacation, if you know what I'm talking about, you're trying to capture. Um, you don't want to remember all family vacations, you just want to remember certain parts of it, amen? So you try to take a snapshot to remember that. But what Jesus is saying is not the snapshot, it's the, it's the next picture. You're wanting a panorama. What does a panorama do? It, it goes and takes the full landscape, right? And Jesus is saying, my life What I've come to do is not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm taking in the full landscape. God in the flesh has literally come to the earth to show the full embodiment of everything that God has described in the law and the prophets. All the goodness of God. All the promises of God. The very heart and the essence of God. Jesus is coming to live before his people. So Jesus hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. Literally, to show the entire world what he's been talking about all of the time. Since the very existence of our our created world. So that's the first assumption that he's trying to debunk. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The second one is that Jesus wants obedience like the religious leaders. So the religious leaders were these pious individuals, all right? So what Jesus is trying to say here by looking at verses 18 and 20 is that we are to fill, in essence, the way Jesus has come and obeyed the law. So in verse 17, Jesus says, not the smallest letter or even the smallest stroke of the law is to be disregarded or considered as small or minute. He says, I'm keeping it all. In verse 18, he says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same is the least in the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying here is, I I have the same expectation that I have for you as I do on my own life. I require complete obedience to the law. There's not a small or insignificant command that you can completely ignore or consider irrelevant. All of it is to be kept in your own life. He, he's, Jesus didn't come to show the important commands to his disciples. He came to show the full embodiment of what it looks like to live, and we are to do the same. Similarly, he says, we will be the least in the kingdom of heaven if you don't keep these. And this is not a way of Jesus trying to rank people in the kingdom of heaven. No, what he's saying is poetically in a way, if you don't even hold all of these, then you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's absolutely essential that all of the law and all of the prophets are completely kept if you're to live in the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives this shocking statement. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So it's already a shock that they are to keep all the commands. But secondly, now the righteousness is supposed to surpass that of the religious leaders. And this is bad news for everybody because the religious leaders are considered the most pious people in keeping God's commands. If you wanted a picture of what holiness looked like back in the day, you were supposed to follow the religious leaders. 
One of the, the Bibles, that children's Bibles that we read to our boys depicts them as the extra super holy people. So the response is, how in the world am I supposed to surpass these people? If we're not careful, we, we can read into this that we're to outperform the professionals. And I think that's actually harmful. It's actually destructive to relationships. I, I was reminded of this even in myself here pretty recently. I had a, a childhood friend that um, kind of re-engaged a relationship with me. He texted me, said, hey, I know that in the past we didn't see eye to eye, but I've seen pictures of you. It looks like you have a beautiful family. It seems like you're doing well. And the thing that I couldn't get across was I know that we didn't always seem to eye to eye because here's, here's what I remember. This is a guy that I wrestled with in what it looked like to follow Jesus. And we would get in heated yelling matches about how his life was matching up to the very commands of God. And it was destructive. And this isn't what Jesus is trying to get at at all. When Jesus pictures us following in obedience, walking in light and in tune with the commands of God, it's not a destructive or harmful presence. It's actually quite the opposite. So the, the thing that the scribes and the Pharisees did really well was outward obedience. But Jesus is concerned with more than just the visible. Jesus is especially concerned about our insides and our heart. The thing that the scribes and the Pharisees lacked was a soft, a warm, a tender, affectionate heart towards God's and other people. You see this at the end of the book of Matthew. He says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside with your actions and your obedience, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The very thing that Jesus is trying to depict here is not that you're trying to outperform the professionals, but instead you have this soft, gentle, affectionate heart towards your own God. It's the very thing that the scribes and the Pharisees lacked. We don't, we don't need to try and make this too hard. All right, We get this. So, I love my wife. I do. I love my wife deeply. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of my time, my, my heart towards my wife is affectionate. If she were to come and ask for the keys to the car, it's like, absolutely, yes, take, take the car. I, I, I love my wife. But when it comes to strangers that are walking down the street, my heart's a little bit more hard and skeptical, right? What Jesus is saying, is, I, I want you to have a heart similar to the love and affection that you have for the loved ones in your life. I want that to be the character for which you relate with your God and other people. That's how your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not outperforming the professionals, but it's a gentle and tender heart towards God. So what's the relationship for us as followers of Jesus to the commands of God? completely obey we completely obey not only that but our righteousness is supposed to surpass even the most holy of people in God's present day we have a gentle warm 
and affectionate heart. So the question for Jesus' disciples would be this. Well, if we're supposed to do better than the scribes and Pharisees, then what in the world does this look like? They're, they're the model. If we were to be holy, what does it look like if we're supposed to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees? And I think Jesus gives us a picture of this in his six ethical teachings throughout the remainder of this passage. So I want us to look at what does life according to the law of God look like? And here's a couple of things that we need to notice before we dive into these six different statements. All right. The first one is this. Every time that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he talks about a command of God, what he's doing is he's affirming the law of God. It seems like he might be contradicting it, but he's affirming the law of God. Because then he moves into, but I tell you. And what he's doing is he's not contradicting, he's not abolishing. What he's doing is he's providing a deeper interpretation. And as he does this, he uses what we call hyperbole, which is exaggerated statements. All right? Not everything that Jesus is saying here is something that he means for us to take literally. What he's trying to do is for us to get a heart, a mind, a picture of what a life in obedience to God's commands really looks like. So there's six different ones. I want, us to, I want us to think about six words. And I'm just going to try, try to touch on these briefly so that we, we don't get too bogged down into the minute and the details. All right. So the first one is this. Reconciled relationships. Jesus is talking about murder. It says in Matthew 5.21, You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. Affirming the law. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, his deeper interpretation, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the courts. And whoever says, you fool, or you godless person, will be subject to hellfire. And here's where the reconciliation comes. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So here's what's happening. Jesus is 80 miles south of Jerusalem where the temple resides. That's a trek on foot, isn't it? So what Jesus is telling all of his disciples that are up on this mountain is if you travel that 80 miles to Jerusalem to go make the super religious act of sacrificing to God, and you remember not that you hold something against somebody, but something holds something against you. You literally leave the sacrifice, you make the 80 mile trek back down to where you live, and you reconcile that relationship, and then you come back and you can offer your sacrifice. Jesus is saying the spiritual habits or disciplines that we often partake in, relational reconciliation is just as much of an act of worship as any of those. The very heart of who our God is and what He wants for life in His kingdom is restored relationships, an overflow of the relationship that we have with God ourselves. So the first picture is reconciled relationships something that the Pharisees and the scribes didn't pursue. The second is that we are to be pure. He looks at adultery, verse 27. 
You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In God's kingdom, he, he's not just after this outward purity, he also wants this internal purity. You see, sexual promiscuity starts in the human heart, not in the bedroom. And what Jesus is after is immediate action. You see this in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Jesus isn't encouraging self-mutilation here. All right? He's not, he's not thinking that you are literally taking his word here. What he's trying to get across is that you have immediate action. So if there's impurity, even the temptation of pure impurity in your life that comes through th- something like a smartphone, like you're giving up the smartphone and you're going back to the flip phone. You're installing whatever software that you need to on your computer in order to safeguard your life. You're, you're, you're completely getting away of cable or Maybe you're even getting rid of the TV. Jesus is saying you're taking whatever measures possible for you to safeguard your life in order that you're not just outwardly pure, but inwardly pure. A heart that's completely devoted to the Lord. So first, reconciled relationships. Two, complete purity. Third is dignity, or the affirmation of dignity. And you see this in the passage of divorce. Now, I know that sounds weird, but so stick with me, okay? Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot of caveats. I can't wrestle through all of these with this passage, all right? So here's what Jesus is after, right? He is after healthy marriages. His picture is one man, one woman committed for a lifetime together. But I think he's also getting at something deeper here, and it's the acknowledgement, the affirmation of the dignity of every human person, the image of God in every person that walks the face of the earth. Here's where I'm getting this, all right? So Moses in the Old Testament permitted divorce through a divorce certificate, which is basically like a permission slip. And when Jesus was questioned on this issue of divorce elsewhere, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were what? They were hard. A contrast to the very essence of what the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is getting at here. So the certificate of a divorce was sorely abused back in Jesus' day because it objectified women. So here's what I mean. There were issues that were as menial as like a woman burning the supper or because her looks were becoming a little bit older. Um, She wasn't looking as young as she once would. There are literally manuscripts back of Jesus' day that talk about these things, that women were issued permissions of divorce because men were objectifying women. They literally had a promiscuous eye. They had a wandering eye. If there was a woman that seemed to be better, they could literally just write a certificate of divorce and put them on their way. And what Jesus is saying is this is completely contradictory to the life in the kingdom of God. So imagine just the fracture that this created in society. I mean, imagine what happened to families, to kids, 
especially women. The options for making a living for yourself as a woman weren't very great back in this point in time. So it gives light to why Jesus is talking about adultery at the very end. So when he says you're causing her to commit adultery, it's because a woman had limited options. So oftentimes, if a woman was given a permission of divorce, one of her very few options was to go into prostitution. Again, another objectifying of women in that point in time. When he, he talks about if she goes and marries, if a man marries a divorced woman and he, she commits adultery, he's talking about a woman that's being forced to find another husband just for the sake of her own survival. Literally saying, you are causing her to go commit adultery because you're forcing her into a new relationship. Jesus is saying, this is not the heart of my kingdom. The heart of my kingdom is that you acknowledge the dignity of every human being. Every person has the very essence of the image of God. And in this passage, particularly women. If you want a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you acknowledge the dignity of every human being. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the sex. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter anything. You acknowledge the dignity and the worth of every human being. Fourth is honesty. Verse 33. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. The heart that Jesus is getting at here is a heart that is filled with integrity and honesty. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Jesus isn't saying that business contracts are from the evil one, okay? What Jesus is saying here is that we don't have to use statements to qualify our promises. He's saying you don't have to use the statement, I swear on my mother, grandmother's grave. Or I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Or even as simple as, I promise you, I, I promise this time, I, I promise I'm going to keep my, I, it's going to happen, I'm going to follow through. I, you don't have to worry, this time is going to be different. You're saying that doesn't mark the life of a person in my kingdom. Rather than having to qualify yourself or make a promise according to a person or a thing, Jesus is saying your words are clothed with integrity. Your yes and your no can be taken as matter of fact. This is life in the kingdom. Fifth is peace. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Jesus isn't calling us to be wimps or pushovers in the world. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is promoting a life of harmony. It's this quiet trust in the redemptive justice of God over the vengeful justice of man. Get a taste of this in verse 39. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. It's literally where we get the idea of nonviolent resistance. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. actually says about this. He calls it soul force. 
He says this, We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights, I love that language, of meeting physical force with soul force. Jesus is literally trying to say, you break the cycle of violence. When someone comes at you with physical violence, they're trying to get you to engage. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not this wimp, you're not this pushover, but there is this soul force to you as a person in my my kingdom, that you are breaking the cycle of violence. It's at the very heart and the essence of what Paul's trying to say in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. We want a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's a soul force to you. There is a peace to you. There is a harmony that you bring to this world that is different than what you could see in the scribes and the Pharisees. Six is love. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If there is one essential word or message that characterizes the kingdom of God, it is this. It's love. He says in verse 45, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is generous with his love. It's not reserved just for the people he likes. It's for everybody. In the new order of Jesus, just as God showers his enemies with their basic provisions, we should shower our enemies and friends with acts of love and kindness. I love what Alfred Plummer says. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. This is the picture that Jesus has for all of his followers in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what I hope you're feeling, okay? This is where I want you to be right now. In some sense, I want you to see the beauty of that type of life. I want you to see how different and beautiful that type of life is from what we experience in our day-to-day life. But at the same time, I want you to feel a little overwhelmed. And here's the thing. It gets worse before it gets better. Because we move to the very last verse, the summarizing statement for this whole entire passage. And it says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's the exact same phrasing as God's command in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.2 Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. There's one difference though, right? There's a change of a word. 
And it's really important. Jesus changes the word from holy to perfect. The God's desire hasn't changed. He wants us to be holy people. That hasn't changed at all. That's not what Jesus is communicating here. Holiness was associated with religious leaders back in this point in time. It was associated with moral perfection. It was associated with performance. Jesus switches the word to perfect because the word perfect here can also be translated whole or complete. So you could literally translate this, be whole or complete as your heavenly Father is whole and complete. He's he's trying to show these six ethical teachings. This is what a whole and complete life looks like. This is the very character and heart of who your God is. So be perfect, be whole, be complete as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's this idea of flawlessness versus blamelessness. All right? Flawlessness is more about moral perfection. It's concerned with performance. If there was a target with something at the middle, you're trying to aim at your performance to get you in the middle. But blamelessness is more about wholeness or perfection or wholeness or completion. It's about this idea of devotion. So for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus, a person in the kingdom of heaven, there is this complete devotion to their God. It's like you're like Teflon, all right? There's nothing that can stick to you because your, your heart is so fully devoted to who your God is. And you want to mirror, you want to be exactly as he is as you live in relationship with others in this world. That, that's the essence. That's a picture of what Jesus is trying to get across here. Now, here's the beauty about who our Jesus is. Jesus, what he requires, he also provides. Go back to the very beginning of this passage, verse 17. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Those very first words, I came. God left his rightful place in heaven, put on flesh and blood. Literally came into the world. He moves to say, until heaven and earth pass away. He's literally describing his own death. Chapter 24, Jesus says this, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. If you move to chapter 27, this picture is exactly what comes to fruition. Darkness comes over the whole land. The curtain was torn in two. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The picture is that the world is literally ending. And then Jesus talks about in verse 18, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until what? All things are accomplished. Jesus is literally on the cross. And he declares, it is finished. All obedience. The complete sacrifice for sin. It is finished. What Jesus requires, he also provides. Literally steps into your place. So this whole picture takes a big shift with this. Because once we have come to fully trust in Jesus, once we have fully trusted in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, 
The command of God is no longer this picture of a threatening hammer over the life of the Christian. It's now the red carpet for the Christian life. Apart from Jesus, it's a threatening hammer. We're literally living in fear of the hammer coming down on us anytime that we disobey. But because of what Jesus has done, the way that he's provided for us, it's now the red carpet by which we live. The path to the good life that we get to follow. It no longer holds this judgment over our head. The judgment has been dealt with through the death of Jesus. We now get to walk into this obedient life, this good life of Jesus. There's this huge transition. So here's the application for us all. Be perfect. Be whole. Be complete. For those of us that don't know Jesus yet, maybe we should say it, be made perfect. Psalm 14 makes it clear to us that there's no one that has kept the law of God. He literally says, there's, no, there's not one. I look down from heaven and there's not one that has kept it fully. But, Jesus himself came down and he's the one that filled it for you. Romans chapter 3 says this, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All he's asking you to do is put your worst foot forward. Trust, believe in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf and you'll be ushered into this kingdom of heaven. They are justified freely. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Be made perfect be made a whole. Here's the reality for us all. We're all spiritual Humpty Dumpties. We all need to be put back together again. We all need to be made whole. Be made perfect. For those of us that are Christians, be perfect. Be whole. Be complete. Be who you are. We get a picture of this life in Psalm chapter 1. It's reminiscent of the Beatitudes. It starts out, blessed is the man. This idea of flourishing in the kingdom of God. And here's what he later moves on. Verse 2. His delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. This idea of being made whole, be perfect. You could in some ways relate it with delight in the law of the Lord. That's one of the big reasons why we're wanting to dive into this memory challenge, y'all. We want to get God's word deep into our life, not so that we can perform, but so that we can live in this good life, the red carpet that God has put before us. We live into this life. Delight in the law of the Lord. Get it deep down inside of you so that we may walk and experience the goodness of the life that Jesus has given us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts this idea of obedience. Obedience is not a stodgy plodding in the ruts of religion. It is a hopeful race towards God's promises. When you delight in the law of the Lord, you're running towards the promises of the Lord. It's not the threatening hammer. It's the red carpet. Let's close with this, all right? So in this book that Eugene Peterson wrote, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, he stole this line from a former philosopher called Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was an atheist. 
He was a German philosopher and philanthropist. And he saw Christianity as weak and a potential demise of our present world, particularly the Western Hemisphere. And so a long obedience in the same direction is a, a sentence that Eugene Peterson uses redemptively as a title for the Christian life. And here's what he says at the end of his book. I sometimes amuse myself by imagining Frederick Nietzsche, who announced the death of God and who is now long dead himself, showing up in my study as I'm writing my books. He looks over my bookshelves and sees part of a sentence he wrote as a title on one of the books. He learns that I wrote the book and he beams, although I do have trouble imagining Nietzsche beaming. I guess he wasn't a bright or uh, loving guy. How pleased he is to find that I have kept his wonderful sentence, a long obedience in the same direction in circulation into the third Christian millennium. Then he takes the book off the shelf and looks through it. His face furrows into an angry frown. You can just kind of see the picture or image there, that I love angry frown. The old atheist once convinced that Christians, by promoting the weak, the ineffectual Jesus to keep the weakest, the spiritually diseased, the morally unfit, and inferior parts of the population alive and reproducing were a malign influence on civilization and would be the ruin of us all. He thought he delivered a death blow, and now he finds us still at it. This life may seem weak. You may seem like a wimp. You may seem like a pushover to some, but you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, the light and the law of the Lord. It's the red carpet to the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would graciously Help us live into this life that Jesus has won for us. He's literally stood in our place. He's ushered us into the kingdom of heaven. I pray, God, that we would see this righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, not as an overbearing burden in our life, but an invitation to experience in full the goodness that Jesus has one for us. May we model, may we exemplify the ethical teachings of Jesus as people experience us in this world. May they say that is the salt and light of the world. May we delight in your law. May we hide it deep in our hearts and our minds. And in it all, may we experience you here and now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We end our services with moving through the um, form of communion. So if you are not a Christian here yet, be made perfect. Enter into relationship with Jesus. But for those of us that are Christians, come and receive this meal this morning. You can take a portion of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. Your, the wine is marked by twine. Be remembered that Jesus has done it all. He fulfilled all the law and the prophets. We get to live into this kingdom of heaven that he's won for us. And as you come take this meal, be reminded of that and rejoice in what Jesus has done. You can come and take this meal when you're ready.